Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. You may be seated. I know I speak for the whole family of HHBC when I say how grateful we are for Diana and Brady leading us in song and in worship. As our visitors may not know, last week Brady was officially and warmly and wholeheartedly affirmed and unanimously voted in to be our new worship leader for HHBC. You will often hear around Harrison Hills that this is God's church, meaning he will have his way and he will provide as he sees fit. And we may rest fully in that. Simply preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and encourage with every form of patient instruction. God's recipe for watching over his people and nourishing his church is a very simple formula. Exposit the word. Worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Be faithful to serve and give in all areas. Love one another in unity. And you will gain all that God has for you in a body of believers. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, last week we began another Mark and Sandwich with two very different people. And in many ways, these two, Jairus and the woman, could not be more different. One was a man, the other was a woman. One was rich, the other was poor. One was respected, the other was rejected. One was a, who we might call a somebody, the other one was a nobody. One lived a life of honor, while the other lived a life of shame. One was actually a leader in the synagogue, while the other could not even show her face in the synagogue. One had a 12-year-old child. The other had a 12-year-old hemorrhage. One had 12 years of delight with his daughter, while the other had 12 years of despair. These two would have never crossed paths during the course of normal life. They could not be more different. Yet Mark's gospel brings them together under the banner of Christ. Under the banner of a desperate faith that cried out for help, for relief, for healing, for a miracle. And all these two had in common was a desire to lay hold of Christ. We saw Jairus spend likely two days on the seashore, didn't we? Waiting for Jesus to return, knowing, knowing that Jesus was able to save his daughter and that Jesus was his last hope. If Jesus did not come, Jairus' daughter would surely die. And this heart-wrenching story that certainly would cause every parent listening to swoon with empathy and grief was rather abruptly paused as our attention was turned to this ailing woman, this permanently unclean and untouchable woman. Well, Mark desires that we possess the same empathy that we have for Jairus, for this woman. Now, it's not an easy task given her medical condition. Many would not only want to not broach the subject, such as an unseemly topic like the flow of blood, but would rather, but would think her guilty of some sin that she has been cursed to be like she is. Remember Mark's pattern of language that he uses, designed to build sympathy for this woman, to look beyond the ceremonial implications and to see this woman, enter into her shame and her misplaced guilt and understand what it meant to live as she had to live and to see the compassion of our Savior. She broke every taboo, pushing her way through the crowd, touching and defiling by Jewish standard, 
every person she would even brush up against. And her approach is not one of directness. She does not approach in full frontal fashion, reaching out and laying her hand on his cloak. No, hers would have been a most humble approach of desperation. She probably crawled. This would have stopped others from being able to identify her. She could just keep inching and almost sneaking forward, foot by foot. And finally, when she had gotten close enough, I imagine she came up as close as she could possibly get behind Jesus, maybe even having to reach through people's feet. And she grabs hold of that tassel. And immediately, she knew that she had been healed. Her issue of blood was gone. She was healed of her affliction. She knew it the very second she lay hold of that tassel. That's where we find ourselves this morning in part two. Part two of both death and disease running headlong into the divine. A divinity that loves. A divinity that has compassion. This is not an impersonal God who reigns high above that's unknowable and certainly untouchable. No, Jesus is here. He's in the flesh. He's touchable. He's approachable. He's interruptible, as some folks call it. This is the divinity that has all authority over death and disease. So with that, let's look at our text this morning. Mark 5, beginning with verses 30 through 34. We'll finish our pericope with this tenacious and faith-filled woman. Mark 5, 30 through 34. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and was saying, Who touched my garments? And his disciples were saying to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, Who touched me? And he was looking around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Let's pray. Kind and merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you that you dwell in unapproachable light that cannot be seen, yet you've come down to dwell with your people, to take on human form and to be in the midst of the crowd and the press, to be our high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. Holy Spirit, we ask that you illumine the text for us this morning. Point us to Jesus that we might see you more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many are familiar with the timeless book, Pilgrim's Progress, written in a prison cell by one John Bunyan, who was kept there because of his refusal to stop preaching. And some of you know that Charles Spurgeon famously read this book once a year until his death. It had famous characters in it, such as the pilgrim Christian, evangelist, faithful, obstinate, charity, piety, prudence, Talkative, hopeful, and of course, the giant despair. Many colorful characters. It's a wonderful book about the progress of Christian the pilgrim from the city of destruction toward the celestial city, toward heaven. Now, as one is reading this book, a question arises for some. At what point in Christian's journey does he get saved? Where does Christian actually pass from death to life? 
Well, professor of literature and culture at Southern Seminary, Dr. Jim Oreck, he writes that there are usually two answers. Some surmise that Christian was saved when he entered through the wicked gate. Others surmise that Christian was saved when his burdens rolled off his back at the cross. In fact, most conclude that Christian was saved at the cross. But this would not be correct. He writes that most get the answer wrong because they misunderstand three critical elements of Bunyan's allegory. First, they misunderstand the wicked gate. They misunderstand Christian's burden. And finally, they misunderstand the proper object of saving faith. This is critical. This is critical for understanding the faith of the two in our text today in Capernaum. The first that folks misunderstand is the wicked gate itself. What is the wicked gate that the pilgrim Christian had to pass through? A wicked gate is a small or narrow gate. And in the Bible, Jesus identifies himself as the narrow gate. So in Pilgrim's Progress, the wicked gate represents Christ. Thus, when Christian asks his friend evangelist, where should I go? Evangelist doesn't send him to the cross. He sends him to the wicked gate, doesn't he? The second misunderstanding is what makes up Christian's burden on his back that rolls off his back at the cross. What does that burden represent? Well, when we meet Christian, he has an enormous burden on his back, doesn't he? Christian's burden represents not sin per se, but the shame and the doubt that he feels because of his sin. Christian's sins are forgiven and he is justified when he receives Christ, which is represented by entering the wicked gate. But Christian does not yet understand the basis for that forgiveness. So his conscience continues to bother and burden him. Therefore, what Christian loses at the cross is his shame and his doubt caused by sin, not sin itself. Because his sins had already been forgiven when he entered the wicked gate. Well, if you'll remember when Christian gazed at the cross, he received a scroll, didn't he? And it was there upon receiving that scroll of writing, representing knowledge that he understood things like the atonement, like imputed righteousness, giving him assurance that his sins were forgiven. Dr. Oreck continues here, this understanding of Christian salvation in Pilgrim's Progress parallels Bunyan's own experience. For many months after his conversion, he was tormented by deeply unsettling questions about his salvation. But all these questions were put to rest when he came to understand imputed righteousness. When he came to understand that the righteousness of Christ was given and was imputed to him. So Christian was saved the moment he entered the wicked gate. And that was before he came to the cross. Which leads us to the third misunderstanding, that of the proper object. Of saving faith. Is it the cross? Or is it Christ? Is it the cross? Or is it the wicked gate? Where was Christian saved? It was at the wicked gate. No, no one can be saved apart from what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But the Bible proclaims that a person gets saved when he receives Christ. And it does not say that a person gets saved through the act of, say, believing that Jesus died for him. Christ himself is the proper object of saving faith, not some part of his work. Now, this is a reflective moment for most, because in these days, Oric writes, it's not uncommon for a person to have been told that if he will believe that Jesus died for him, he will be saved. But I repeat, that is not found in the Bible. 
A person is saved not when he believes all the right doctrine, but when he believes on the right person, namely Christ. So the object of saving faith is not a doctrine, but a savior. Be thinking about Jairus and the woman as we're considering these things. Be thinking about what they knew. Be thinking about their level of their faith and the level of their knowledge when they came. There are many doctrines to the gospel, aren't there? This includes the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. It includes Jesus being a descendant of David. It includes that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas in the twelve. There are several essential parts of the gospel message and a person must believe the gospel in order to be saved. But a part, hear this saints, even an essential part is not the whole. Hang with me here. This again from Dr. Oreck. What we believe in Jesus, we affirm what the Bible teaches about who he is and what he did to reconcile us to God. But Christ himself is the treasure chest of salvation. Receive him and you receive all that is in him. Yes, the doctrine of substitutionary, penal atonement, it's an indispensable, essential component of the gospel, for example. But it's not the whole gospel. Saints, how many of you understood substitutionary atonement when you were saved? How many of you? Well, you might be a rare duck, but I'm going to guess that not one of you understood substitutionary atonement when you were saved. And yet you were genuinely converted. How? Because in spite of having underdeveloped or even mistaken ideas about difficult theological truths, all who receive Christ, the risen Lord, as Savior are saved. Anyone who receives Christ and believes in his name receives the right to become a child of God. John 1.12 Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Acts 16.31 So what is belief? What is belief? Is it mental assent? Is belief intellectual agreement? Is belief knowledge? What is at the heart of belief? True belief is an action. At the heart of belief, at the heart of faith, is not mere profession, it is possession. A thousand profess Christ, but do you possess Christ? You say, well, I think so, Pastor. How do I know? Well, how do you answer, what must I do to be saved? If you were told, believe that Jesus died for your sins and you will be saved, that is a deadly error. Permit me a lengthy snippet from the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, on this topic. Quote, I have sometimes thought when I have heard addresses from some revival brethren who kept on saying time after time, believe, 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 that I should like to have known for myself what it was we were to believe in order to be saved. There is, I fear, a great deal of vagueness and crudeness about this matter. I have heard it often asserted that if you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, you will be saved. My dear hearer, do not be deluded by such an idea. You may believe that Jesus Christ died for you, and you may believe what is not true. You may believe that which will bring you no sort of good, whatever. That is not saving faith. The man who has saving faith afterwards attains to the conviction that Christ died for him, but it is not the essence of saving faith. Do not get that into your head or it will ruin you. 
Do not say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for me, and because of that, feel that you are saved. I pray that you remember that the genuine faith that saves the soul has for its main element trust, absolute rest of the whole soul on the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. Powerful words from the Prince of Preachers. Saints, we're filling your cup early here on in the sermon. I get that. And some may even be stretching the mind. But what are we to take away? Today in our text, we have two people. Two people who are coming with an incomplete knowledge of Jesus. They have faulty assumptions about him. They have superstition mixed into their belief. And yet we hear at the end, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What has she laid hold of? No, who has she laid hold of? She had no profession whatsoever out loud. But however imperfect her understanding of Jesus, she must possess him. She will crawl in the dust and reach through the feet of others and she will grab hold of that tassel and she will possess him. She has laid hold of the treasure chest and the only one who has authority to give true peace now says, go in peace. The Christian faith is not one of mere profession. It is one of possession. It is not one of saying the right words or having our theology perfect when we first come to him. You may know nothing whatsoever when you first come to him. You just know that he's your only hope. You know that there's nowhere else to turn. You know that you must possess him at all costs and you desperately grab for that tassel on the robe. That's the wicked gate. That's the narrow way. You've obtained Christ. That is where salvation lies. That is how Jesus can say, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She's laid hold of the treasure chest. It is Christ. Millions upon millions profess Jesus. But how many possess him? How many have crawled in the dirt, having seen their desperate state to lay hold of him? That's the wicked gate. She has reached up. She has pulled open the gate and Jesus knows it. Beginning with our text here, Mark 5, verse 30. Mark 5, verse 30. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and was saying, who touched my garments? Well, what a fascinating verse. Our first question we need to ask is, how soon... After the woman lay hold of the tassel, did Jesus know it? Immediately. There is no delay. Divinity does not negotiate with disease that is purpose to heal. Divinity does not negotiate with death that it is purpose to destroy or reverse. But what does this verse tell us about God? What does this verse tell us about how he works? Is his power impersonal? Is his power some sort of separate entity floating above us all, wielded indiscriminately? Or is it intensely personal? Mark writes that Jesus was perceiving in himself. Epigonosco, meaning I know exactly what this is. I know it perfectly because I've experienced this before. It's a personal knowledge gained through this experience that makes Jesus' perception of what's going on absolutely clear that's what this means perceiving in himself I mean this was not jesus first rodeo with this 
that the power proceeding from him had gone forth. This is one of those curious sayings in Scripture, and it definitely requires some, some explanation because it would be very easy to go to some very strange places with this. Jesus did not experience some sort of spiritual short circuit here. He didn't have an overvoltage power outage or something like that. All right. Remember what this verse tells us about God and his power, that it's personal. He feels it. He wills it with knowledge and with purpose. Not like an animal that has certain defenses around it. Right. And if you if you touch it, you get stung or hurt independent of the will of the creature. Jesus' power is not autonomous from him. When the woman touched him, Jesus didn't go, uh-oh, I wasn't ready for that. She just, she just got the full voltage there. I kid a little bit, but the principle remains. Jesus' power is personal. His power did not flow from him to this woman independent of Jesus' will. Jesus perceived within himself the significance of this woman's touch. It's almost like a parent standing at the sink doing dishes. Notice I said parent and not wife doing dishes. I get myself in trouble there. And your young one comes up behind you and, and tugs on your shirt, right? And you know so well you can almost perceive what they're wanting, the intensity of what they're wanting just by the tug. You know the tug. You know what's coming. Jesus knows this tug of desperation and of faith. He knows it and he feels it. But what does he feel? What exactly does he sense? Well, many of you have no doubt noticed the banner here to my right. Mark identifies and aims to show Jesus not only as the divine son of God, but as what? As the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. Isaiah tells us as much in Isaiah 53. So what is Jesus feeling and perceiving when this woman grabs hold? Isaiah 53 verse 4 gives us insight. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Jesus said, I will take your disease, your infirmity, your uncleanness upon myself. I will take that and I will give you my wholeness, my health and my purity. And out it goes. He felt the great exchange perfectly identified in our suffering servant. Saints, when the weight of the world's sin was put upon Christ, he felt it. He moaned. He cried out. The redemption of sinners was intensely personal and on the physical level. Jesus felt this. Jesus did not float above all of this in some sort of impersonal way. He is in the trenches. He feels it. He knows it. So what does Jesus do now? Last part of verse 30. He turned around in the crowd and was saying, who touched my garments? What a curious question. Does Jesus not know who touched his garment? Well, of course he knows. So why ask this? Why ask who touched my garments? Well, there was only one other person in earshot of that question who knew the answer to that question. Jesus says, oh, no, you don't. You do not get to dine and dash at the healing restaurant. He's calling her out. This shows us exactly where Jesus' priority lie. Does Jesus value the miracle here? Or does he value the person? 
If the miracle was what mattered, if her healing what was, was what mattered, she could have grabbed that tassel, been healed, and she could have sunk back into the crowd and into obscurity. But no. Jesus is eternally minded. It is this woman's soul that matters. The healing is just a vessel to point her to the Savior. And if you're going to seek after this Savior, if He's going to heal you and make you whole, if He's going to redeem your life from the pit, there is no hiding. You will identify with Jesus publicly. You will stand with Him. You will gaze upon Him. This is relationship. This is intimacy. And this reminds us, of course, of what baptism is as well. A public declaration, an identification with Christ. Jesus was not content here to just dish out a miracle. The miracle is just the means. He wants relationship. And he wants her to be bold, to face him. Jesus will say only three chapters later, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Stand up, woman! And come forth. Not only will you be blessed, but everyone around you will see and know your testimony. A public declaration that your shame is gone. You're clean. You are restored to family. You're restored to society. All of this Jesus desires and more. So he asks, who touched my garments? And don't we love the disciples? Verse 31 and his disciples were saying to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? Well, it's so easy to sit in judgment over the disciples when we read these things, but we mustn't. Saints, if you or I were in that group of men, we would have fared no better. We would have been carnally minded. We would have been temporally minded. We would have been small minded. It is so tempting for us to look at all they had just experienced over the last two chapters and almost yell from the bleachers, come on, seriously? But we must lock our lips as we commit the same error. Any day we fail to take Jesus at his word. Every day a choice or an action or a word spoken in anger or in patience after all Jesus has shown us, after all he saved us from, Thankfully, our cloud of witnesses are encouraging us on, not yelling something else at us from the bleachers in heaven. Now, when we see this crowd pressing in on the scene, one thing we need to realize about this verse without delving into the grammar, there are intensifiers used here that tell us that this press that Jesus had was unusually bad. Jesus was in a press everywhere he went, but this press was crushingly intense. It was pulsing intense. The Hollywood depictions of Jesus in crowds are not accurate. They're not accurate at all. And here we can try to understand where the disciples are coming from. Not only were they literally being roughed up by the crowd. The word is jostled here, meaning they're being elbowed. They're being roughed up. But Jesus had already met this man called Jairus. They heard Jairus's plea. Jesus responded to that plea and we're supposed to be heading to his house. We're getting elbowed in our ribs here. We're trying to push through. We have somewhere to go and you ask who touched you. But Jesus wasn't even talking to them, was he? 
He wasn't even talking to them. That question was meant for one person. Jesus was calling for one of his sheep. One of his lambs had been reaching out in faith. However imperfect, incomplete, faulty. But she heard the voice of the shepherd. And the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. Verse 32. And he was looking around to see the woman who had done this. It's kind of like if the crowd and the bustle it just faded to the background like a camera effect. She knew. She knew. She knew that she had been healed. She knew that she was not going to get away. And while her flesh probably wanted to run out of fear, somehow she knew that this encounter must be. The grace, the calling, the pull of the Lord on those he has called is irresistible. You could no more run from it than a locomotive full steam on the tracks. Jesus will have his man. He'll have his woman and he'll have his child. All that have been given to him, he will capture and he will hold them in his hand and he will not lose a single one. If the Jesus you know is not that Jesus, it's not the Jesus of Scripture. Well, notice in our text here that Jesus knew it was a woman. We see that? It doesn't say he was looking for the person. It says he was looking for the woman. He already knew. That's divinity. The language used here tells us that Jesus was scanning the crowd intently. You've drawn the eye. You've drawn the attention of the gracious, of the loving, of the compassionate, of the most powerful king of kings. And finally, Jesus Christ locks eyes with this woman. Verse 33. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. This scene is so full. But the woman, fearing and trembling. So much to see. First question, why is she fearing and trembling? Well, let's give a well-established clue if you've been following this series. Why were the disciples terrified in the boat when Jesus calmed the sea? Why were the people terrified when Jesus sent legion into the swine? Because you're in the presence of God. And you realize you're in the presence of God. Nothing is veiled. Nothing is cryptic. You know. This woman knows. But her fear is compounded. It's compounded even beyond that. This is not only a sense of standing with divinity, but she has broken massive rules. Her entire life up to this point had been about not touching people. And she has not only touched someone, but she has touched the someone. Have I just made Jesus ceremonially unclean? Would he be angry? You see that perfect misunderstanding? That imperfect understanding again? You can't defile divinity. Sin or disease does not stain divinity. It's the divinity that washes the stain. You brought scarlet, stained, but you'll be made white as snow. But she does not understand that yet, does she? And yet she's entered the wicked gate. No, she felt that she had essentially gone, and for lack of a better term, stolen her healing. That she got away with something here, and she got caught. And of course, that isn't right either, is it? What happens when the sovereign Lord calls you out? Scripture says she came. She came and fell down before him. 
reverence, humility, awe, fear, uncertainty. Was she about to be reprimanded and scolded before this entire crowd? As far as she knew at this point, the one who had healed her, and she knows that she's been healed at this point, the one who is powerful enough to do that might in fact be very angry with her. She doesn't comprehend the mercy that defines her Savior. She has no idea of the grace that overflows from his very nature. She knows very little of his attributes. She doesn't understand her Savior very well yet. No, but she has entered the wicked gate. She is heading toward the celestial city, and she'll learn much more about her Savior along the way. But that begins with confession. The words here are wonderful. She says, and told him the whole truth. I love that. The woman digs deep. A woman who has lived like this for so long has developed some serious grit, no doubt. And while the text doesn't show us, how likely is it that the moment she laid eyes closely on his face, she knew she was in no danger, but in fact was the safest she'd ever been. She told him the whole truth. Here's my story. Here's the details. Her concealing faith is becoming a revealed faith. She's testifying. She's saying, this was my condition. And then you touched me. That's a testimony. My life was this. Then Jesus. Now it's this. Let's not complicate what is so simple. I bet it was a marvelous testimony. Simple and as authentic as can be. Confession and testimony. I'm thinking there, had there been some water there, she would have been baptized right there. Jesus' response to pure faith here records for us something not seen in Scripture up to this point. What is Jesus' response to the testimony of faith? What is His response to the one who has come on their face in fear and trembling? A humble and contrite spirit I will in no wise cast out. She's about to learn something of her Savior. Jesus responds in verse 34. And He said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus calls her daughter. This title of address to her might just seem benign or just friendly. It's far, far more than that. Nowhere, nowhere in the Gospels is Jesus recorded calling anyone else by this name. Only this place. He is declaring you have been adopted. You are now family. That in love he has predestined her to be adopted as his daughter through himself in accordance with his pleasure and his will. You've passed from death to life. You are my child. Your 12 years of rejection and shame are over. And I've called you daughter. Charles Spurgeon wrote of this scene, quote, a piece of fringe talking about the tassel and a finger, suffice to form a contact between a believing sufferer and an almighty Savior. And along that line, faith sent its message and love returned the answer. He calls her by the only name that matters, daughter, meaning you are now in spiritual relationship with me. He says, your faith has saved you. And this is critical for Jesus to say. It's critical for her to understand. You see how the instruction has already begun for her to begin correcting her error. 
At this point in her mind, what held the power? The clothes. The tassels. Her superstition would have still been tied to this. But Jesus says, no, it's not my clothing. It's your faith. And here, though, to get the right intent of Jesus' word, we have to rotate the diamond to both Luke and Matthew's account. If we look here under saved you or made you well, we're going to see a very familiar verb that may ring in your ear. Sozo. Do you remember that word? Salvation. Meaning made whole in every sense. Do you recall that word? As I've shared before, when Jesus saves, he goes all the way. Jesus is saying, you are my child. You have entered into the narrow way. You have come through the wicked gate and you have been made well. The ironic part about this interaction is that up to this point, she was completely consumed with her condition. She was defined by her physical illness. And Jesus, having now healed her, her condition, that was now the new parameters of this relationship. That's what Jesus had done for her. And while it's wonderful, it pales in comparison to what he really did for her. Jesus drives right past the healing, in a sense, and he goes, for what matters? You're saved. You're made whole eternally. How much do we glean and apply from that? Yes, we'll see Jesus address the physical ailment later in this verse. But what's first? Where's the priority? Sozo. Salvation. You have been made truly whole and not in the way you think. You have received a great gift in getting your life back. But I've gone way beyond that. Way beyond that. Do you see? Do we see Jesus heal people in scripture who did not exhibit true saving faith? Yes, we do. And that was done for divine purposes. And yet the healing is tragic in a way. They only left with the restored body. They only got the appetizer. It's a shame. Our good and compassionate Savior now leaves her with no doubt. Leaves us with no doubt about what has transpired here. Last part of verse 34. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Well, here is so often is the case, the English fails us. We read, go in peace. But the word here is ice, which does not mean in, but into. So this literally reads, go into peace. This matters why. To simply say, go in peace was a common phrase. It's almost like, bye, see you tomorrow at the market. We'll see you next Sunday at church. Go in peace. Not what Jesus says here. This is much more profound. Go into peace. Jesus is telling her that her future has changed. That which was not now is. She was not who she was. Her future is not what it was. He makes all things new. Go into peace. Go is in the imperative, meaning you've just begun your going and you will keep on going. And as you keep on going, my peace is ever before you. And peace not like the world gives we often use the word peace, don't we? And it's broadly used and, and applied. But what does it actually mean here? This peace means to join or bind together that which has been separated. It pictures the binding or joining together again of that which has been separated or divided. A more perfect word could not have been used. A joining together again of that which has been separated or divided. 
We once were enemies of God. Separated by God through wicked works. We rightly look upon this woman. With the issue of blood, with great pity, as we should. Jesus had compassion on her, and so should we. Suffering of any kind is an ever-present reminder of the condition of our world that's mired in sin. But the main miracle here is not the healing of her condition. It was the saving of her soul. The salvation of a man, of a woman, or a child is the most consequential miracle on this side of the resurrection. If you are born again here this morning, you are the recipient of the greatest miracle someone can receive. But do we set that miracle before us daily? Do we thank God for this gift? Or are we often like the woman who tried to dine and dash at Heaven's Restaurant? Do we desire the benefits without the relationship and obedience that comes with such a precious gift? For those this morning, like this woman who will humble themselves, who will come on their face with all their warts, all their diseases, all their pains, He will not turn you away. If you will come in repentance and faith, He will not merely say to you, go in peace, but He will tell you that you are now mine, a treasure of my own possession, that I am your healer. Now go into peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us out of darkness and into this marvelous light. Lord, we loved our sin. We swam in it. We reveled in it. We gloried in it. Now, Lord, by your hand, by your saving hand, that which we used to love, we now hate. That which we used to hate, we now love. But we're made a new creation in you. We thank you for this woman with the issue of blood. We thank you, Lord, that however imperfect her understanding was at the beginning, she knew that she must lay hold of you. And Lord, we ask that that would ring true in our hearts today. Lord, if there be anyone who does not know you, Lord, we ask that you would do a mighty work that only you can. Heavenly Father, we love you. We ask that you would abide and watch over us this week as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.